This series deals with themes of violence, loss of life, grief, trauma, and mental health. The content may not be suitable for younger listeners. Kia ora, I'm Mitchell Alexander. And I'm Alex Mason. Welcome to Season 1 of Unclassified, a series where we bring you first-hand tales from those who served during New Zealand's 20-year deployment to Afghanistan. Today, we're joined by Major David Foote to hear about his experience as a nurse in a war zone, trying to tend to the wounded in the heat of battle, and the role combat lifesaver training played in assisting wounded soldiers during a deadly firefight. Major David Foote comes from a military family. His great-grandfather was wounded at Gallipoli. Both of his grandfathers served in the Second World War, and his father served in the Territorial Forces. At the age of 17, David signed up as a regular force cadet, then became an army medic. He spent time out of the military, working as a nurse before rejoining. In 2012, David, in the rank of captain, deployed as a nursing officer to Afghanistan for six months. During the Battle of Baghak, he helped treat around a dozen wounded New Zealand and Afghan nationals and evacuate the bodies of two Kiwi soldiers who had been killed. In the thick of that battle, David was trying to save lives while his own life was in grave danger. Thank you for joining us today, David. Thanks. Let's go back to that day in August 2012 when the light armoured vehicle you're travelling in, the LAV, is approaching the village of Baghak. When did you realise that something was happening outside the vehicle and at that point, what was going through your mind? Yeah, so there was a bit of confusion around the time as we sort of entered that area of the theatre. We knew that an event was occurring, but we didn't know the extent or what was actually going on. I think the real oh well moment for me was when I knew or was made aware that we had the first New Zealand casualty, and that was the oh shit moment for me. It all became real very quickly. What was it like being inside the vehicle? Could you hear anything that was going on outside? Not an awful lot. There was a uh, American aircraft that flew over and certainly heard that loudly. And then, of course, the light arms gunfire started, so that made it even more real. But when I was in the lav, I couldn't actually see anything. I could hear a lot of radio traffic, which was sort of hard to pin down what was going on, but certainly couldn't see anything. So at what point did you get out of the lav and, and what were you doing at that stage? Yeah, I've got a little bit of... I guess, memory confusion or a bit of amnesia around those immediate moments. But I do remember after we knew that we'd taken that that first casualty, one of the soldiers in our lab actually left the vehicle. I didn't see him leave, but he left the vehicle to go and assist that casualty. And then sometime later, which was probably only a few minutes, we I made the decision to get there as well to try and help that casualty. We knew that he was still in danger in harm's way. We knew that he was still being fired on. So I understand that once you're out, you came across an injured soldier lying on the road completely exposed. Is that who we're talking about? That is who we're talking about, but I've got really sketchy memory around the details of when I actually came in contact with that soldier. Something almost amusing happened. I remember as I got out of the lav, coming around the back of the lav, and 
didn't have really good situational awareness as I sort of uh, headed down into that area. And I remember ducking around one side of the lever going, oh no, I've really uh, botched this. I don't know quite where I'm going to. Where is this guy that I need to get to? Um, and then obviously I managed to see him and, and head forward, but I don't really clearly remember that piece. But the next really clear memory I've got was as we brought him into the back of a further forward lav. I must have gotten ahead of him because I remember the, he wound up across the knees or laps of the guys in the back of that lab. There was about three of us in there. And so he went up across us so that we could carry on and start treatment. And tell us about that moment. How badly wounded was he? What were you doing? He was really badly wounded. And I guess that was the first time that I'd come in contact with a real battle casualty um, and had a large or, you know, felt that real responsibility to, hey, now's my time to perform. And so, yeah, I was certainly not overwhelmed in any way. Uh, yeah, but it was very real. But there was quite a bit of difficulty, you know, so I'm sure you can, uh, the listeners can imagine five or six guys in the back of a lav, you're still in a firefight, there's a lot of background noise going on and trying to determine what his injuries were and what was the best that I could do for him in the back of the lav. He was in a heck of a lot of pain as well. So we're trying to get on top of his, his pain as early as we possibly could do. What does it feel like when you're in that situation, when you're having to put your training into action in the middle of a war zone? I think in the first instance, I was probably pretty well set on automatic and just carried on doing what I needed to do. There was um, three soldiers opposite me in the back of the lab, so they were actually able to assist me with pinning down where those wounds were and, and how extensive they were. Did you realise at the time that other personnel involved in that rescue were being shot and wounded alongside you? Oh, no, I didn't. I knew that one of the sergeants, that, that first sergeant that left the vehicle that we were in originally, I didn't know where he had got to after we got this casualty into the back of the lav. But I also know that there was another service person as well that left the lav at the same time as me to go and get the casualty. And there was a really interesting conversation that occurred at that time because he sort of said to me, hey, before we even left the lab, do you need me to come and give you a hand? And I said, yeah, not knowing exactly what I was going into. And he actually did leave that lab and, and came and assisted me. And there's a bit of a regret there for me because he was actually injured as he returned back to that original lab after we'd got the casualty in. When you were leaving the lab, running out into that sort of situation where you don't have good situational awareness and a battle is going on. How do you steel yourself for a moment like that? I don't remember at any point being afraid. I'm not naive about it. I knew exactly what was going on or enough about what was going out there to know what I was going into and what that danger would be. And and I do remember sort of rounds splashing around me as we were sort of moving around, around in that area. But I don't remember being afraid. I, th I think I was in part on autopilot and just carrying on and doing what I felt like I needed to do. But how does that make you feel knowing that you were in the vicinity of, of rounds and, and being quite close to being hit? Yeah, I've thought about that a fair bit since. And as I've reflected on that later in my life, I'm married with a couple of children. And on one level, it was what I felt I needed to do at the time. On another level, it was probably a pretty selfish move as a dad and a husband because it could have turned out completely differently. And I've thought a lot about that, though what if it had turned out differently? Probably I would have come under some pretty heavy criticism if I I too had been injured because I was the the health person out there at the time. And it was very early on in that firefight. And clearly the, the rest of the team and the other casualties needed me. So yeah, I've thought a fair bit about that. I don't think I overthought it at the time though. I think I was, yeah, made a decision and went. Looking back now though, are you at peace with that decision? 
yes, I am, because I came through it okay. But then as I do think back on that decision and, and those other two people, so I mentioned that sergeant that left the lab sort of ahead of me and the other service person behind me, they were both injured. So I was one of those three that actually came out unscathed. After you got the heavily injured soldier into the lab, I understand that you set up a casualty collection point so that you could treat wounded and ready them for evacuation. Can you describe what the collection point looked like amidst the terrain and everything that was going on? Yeah, so we were in essentially in a gully with really steep mountainous ranges on either side of us. The casualty clearing point that we set up was really just a piece of bare land. It was by a stream and it was just a collection point where we gathered the casualties. We thought we were far enough back out of the firefight to be safe out in the open. That changed along the way and we realised that we were actually taking small arms fire at that casualty clearing point as well. And so we actually shifted it and moved behind a sort of a small building and across the stream to the other side, nestled in against the sort of uh, left-hand side ranges. And how many people were involved in treating the wounded at that stage? Oh, we had uh, the KT1 team, so that's the Kiwi Team 1, and that was a team of, I can't remember the exact number, I think we probably had 10 or 12 people on the ground at that time, minus the injured people, of course, yeah, to assist. So I had first aiders, uh, defence first aiders, and combat lifesavers to help me. And what sort of number of casualties are we talking about that you're trying to tend to while you're coming under fire yourselves? Yeah, that tripped me up a little bit. Um, so I had initially just that first casualty. And I think that probably for about 10 or 15 minutes, I was focused in on that casualty. But then I fairly, well, we fairly quickly got loaded with with other casualties and we received another three casualties within sort of about 10 or 15 minutes. And they were all Kiwis at that stage. We also received a deceased Kiwi. And then a little bit further down the track, we managed to stabilise those casualties and evacuate them. In fact, it must have been five or six. But and then through the, the period of the next couple of hours, we received more casualties, including Afghan casualties. Could you go into a little bit more detail in terms of the fire that you came under during that time? What was going on and, and how did you respond? Yeah, hey, I just knew that we immediately had to move and get the casualties and our team out of there. And so when I say get them out of that immediate fire, it wasn't far. We were only moving those casualties probably 20 or 30 metres behind that building. It got tougher each time because I sort of was heading out. The combat lifesavers essentially stayed with the casualties uh, and we sort of moved backwards and forwards, getting them on stretches and, and back around behind that building. There was one moment that I was uncomfortable with and that was when I went out to get the last casualty um, and I can remember having a fleeting thought that this casualty I already knew in my heart of hearts that he wasn't going to make it. He was really seriously injured. I was very confident he wasn't going to make it. I still left and headed out to join the Combat Lifesaver to bring that casualty back into safety and I think that decision at that time wasn't really as much about that casualty as it was about the Combat Lifesaver. Something interesting that occurred that I guess I hadn't really thought through a lot and I don't know whether any of us had was the Combat Lifesavers are in many instances most probably the best mates of these casualties Um, and so in that specific instance that Combat Lifesaver was working on working with one of his best mates. So in order to get him back into a safe place, we had to get that casualty back into a safe place too. And then when I went back out there, I believe he was actually um, protecting that casualty using his own body and body armour. 
which is really, yeah, a heartfelt moment for me to see that. So the combat lifesavers, they're not part of the medical personnel like yourself. They're actually other soldiers with additional medical skills. Is that right? Yeah, dead right. So we take a... um, all of our soldiers, well, the vast majority of our soldiers on deployment will have been through the defence first aid training. And we teach them other skills as combat lifesavers to prepare them to deliver a much higher level of first aid, like pain relief, much more in-depth training around how to stop severe bleeding, intravenous access so that we can get fluids going and so on. So yeah, a much higher level. Now, not every um, soldier is a combat lifesaver. And then with that, they also have their own job to do as well. So that, that's a, a secondary role. Uh, but I was lucky at that time that KT1 was tasked with this casualty clearing post. So I had access to all of the combat lifesavers, or, you know, I think I had two or three combat lifesavers and the first aiders and their equipment that they had with them as well. So yeah, was pretty lucky. Did you at any point return fire? No, I didn't. No, no. It didn't even cross my mind to return fire. I, I think I was focused on the casualties. Um, though I was there when others around me were returning fire, particularly in the back of that first lab. I can remember some quite specific events, instances where the team in in that lab were engaging the insurgents. So do nursing officers and medics carry weapons? Yeah, we do. So we still carry weapons. If I was in immediate danger, then, yeah, I would have needed to make that decision at that time or or deal with that situation at that time. But, But I had the entire team there providing that security for us. For you personally, how does that experience compare to the initial experience earlier on when you went out of the lab? I didn't really see it as any different. And it was only a short period of time really on the grand scale of things after that initial contact. Um, So yeah, I didn't really see it as a defining moment, just a next step of getting the casualties to safety. And I didn't do that all myself. I had a whole team helping me. You've mentioned that if you had to return fire, you would have. It sounds like you were in some pretty perilous situations, but that thought didn't enter your mind. It seems like you were just focused on helping others. Yeah, I didn't contemplate it at the time, returning fire, because I didn't feel that I needed to. Um, The insurgents were some distance away from us. I'm not sure exactly how far. I couldn't see any of them and didn't stop to look real hard. So yeah, didn't really think too much about that. Was there any point, though, when you thought, particularly in that second moment when you had to move, that you couldn't go back out and, I guess, rescue one of those casualties? No, I didn't hesitate and wouldn't have. I knew what I needed to do. And I think the team needed to see also that I was prepared to do that and so that they were obviously prepared to help me achieve that. After the battle, how did you feel when you were back at base? It was a really long 48 hours after that time. So we we didn't really get back to our base until I guess it was 4 or 5 p.m. that evening, even though this was sort of around midday and into the sort of like that late morning, early afternoon. I was exhausted, hyped up, absolutely hyped up on, on adrenaline, but we didn't really, it didn't stop there. So we went up at that Ford base and then heading back to another base to do a hot wash and to carry on with all of the follow-up action required, I guess, after an incident like that and capture information. Can you just explain what a hot wash entails? Oh, yeah. So that was, um, while it's fresh what's happened, gathering the information as best as we can for command around what had happened, when it happened, and how that sort of all panned out so that, yeah, a reasonably sensible information picture can be created, as well as, I guess, making it as safe for our team as we can in terms of what happens next. 
did you feel like everyone else was experiencing a similar, I guess, inability to wind down that you were experiencing, that adrenaline after the battle? Yeah, I think we were all in a similar boat there. And a lot of um, contemplating or, or trying to understand what had happened, why it had happened, and, and what we do now. You know, you're sort of, on the one hand, you're, everybody at that point in time probably is hurting and hurting deeply. You know, at that point, we've sort of sent home or in the process of sending home two soldiers deceased in that action and then a couple of Afghans as well that were deceased and then a bunch of injured soldiers as well that were being removed from the team. So, yeah, it was a time of confusion and and hurt as we came to deal with that loss. Uh, But the danger doesn't go away in that we had to try and get the team to a point again and they themselves where there's still a job to be done. The less we are in our A game, probably the more danger or or less security that we've got. So, you know, it was trying to get to that point where over the next few days we're, we've got to get back out there and do the job. And just two weeks later, three more New Zealanders were killed when an explosion destroyed their vehicle. One of them was a medic, Lance Corporal Jacinda Baker. Tell us about when you received that news. Oh, I was absolutely gutted. So what the team tried to do was for each of the members of the wider team to get us back to the Air Force base at Bagram for a couple of days, not in response to what happened at Baghack, but as an ongoing thing for a couple of days of respite in a much larger base where there was sort of other activities and and social things that people could get engaged with and just defuse a little bit for a while. And I had managed to talk our medic officer and command team into spending a week at the hospital in Bagram for my own professional and clinical experience and development. So managed to talk them into allowing me a week back there to work in theatre and and recess and so on. Um, And I can remember I was walking down the road in Bagram and an American soldier came up to me and said, hey, you probably need to get back to the base where we were sort of staged at at Bagram, where that small headquarters was, because you've had an IED attack. There's been some um, Kiwis injured in an IED attack. Now, he couldn't tell me any more than that then. And so, you know, obviously got back to where I needed to be and, and found out the information. It was a bit sketchy at that stage in terms of how extensive it was, but and we had a, a small group of Kiwis with us there at that time that had come back for that respite with me oh, at the same time as I did. But then also there was a team working out of Bagram too, a small team involved in logistics and, and so on. So, yeah, I can remember just being absolutely gutted and and really all of us wanting pushing for information, you know, what is this, what has happened, how, how serious is this, who is it, who's involved and, and what do we do now about this? What impact did that have on you and other members of the medical team losing a member of that team? It was devastating. There's so many scenarios that you work through in your head, even before you deploy, and then when you deploy about, you know, how would I feel about this if this happened or that happened? At no time did I contemplate what would it mean if we lost a member of the medical team and a medic. So it was, yeah, something that was hadn't even contemplated it, and it was, yeah, devastating for us. Can you tell us what Jacinda was like as a person and as a soldier? Jacinda was an amazing soldier and a fantastic medic. Um, One of the best medics I've ever had the privilege of working with. Medics are amazing anyway. I think they're just fantastic people and they do an amazing job. There's something funny with Jacinda, that a small story that I remember. Jacinda looked after me at a time as well. You know, being a nursing officer, there's some very military things that are a bit foreign to me, like, you know, our body armour and putting that together because it comes disassembled and you've got to put it all together. And I can remember I was sitting out in front of a group of soldiers 
and fumbling with this, looking like a pretty ordinary nursing officer, looking like I had no idea what I was doing. And Jacinda sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, sir, I think you better come with me. And she sort of took me away around the back and helped me put this thing together, which is just like a mystery puzzle to me. Probably still would be. Um, yeah, and that was just who Jacinda was. Yeah, I think at times she was she was looking out for me too. Something um, else that happened there was the group of Kiwis that were in Bagram at the time that that occurred went and set up a, a vigil at the place where our deceased soldiers were. That was a, a pretty moving time as well. Yeah, I did find that, you know, that really strong sense of Kiwis looking after Kiwis. So that was quite emotional. After that second incident, I understand that you decided to write some letters to your loved ones back at home. Can you talk us through what compelled you to do that? I just was left feeling like things were changing so fast. And you think a lot, you know, in those times of adversity about family. And I guess it came back a little bit to in that firefight. What would have happened if that had turned out differently? I could just as easily have been Jacinda or, or one of the others. Yeah. yeah, And what would that mean for my family? And, you know, there's so much unspoken sometimes. Um, and so that was what that was about for me. I, I don't think I was alone there. I've spoken to others that went through a similar process. And I just was sort of thinking, what would I really want my wife or, or my, my daughter or my son to know? And that's what that was about. So the letters were to your wife and your children? Yeah, yeah, and my parents. I wrote individual letters to all those people. And I don't didn't know at that time whether they would ever be read. And yeah, and just sent them, you know, in the hope that they would never need to be read. But and, you know, most likely they wouldn't be, but just in case, eh? Hey? To this day, Olivia, my daughter, has read hers and she was happy releasing what I had set out when I did a, an article with the stuff with Eugene Bingham and DPA earlier, or oh, I think that was last year or the year before. But my son hasn't read his. I left it entirely over to them whether they ever did or not. And obviously um, recognising that some of the letters haven't been read, what were some of the things that you did want to say in yeah. those letters? Yeah, I think those letters were about me expressing what I'm proud of and value most about that family member and what I see for them in the future and what I would want for them in the future. And how did you feel after you'd written them and you'd sealed those envelopes? Probably a deep sense almost of relief of, hey, that's a loose end that's tidied off now if it ever needs to be enacted. But then also a, a sense of have I overreacted here? Is that actually a damaging thing to do for people? further down the track, how useful is it? But it was useful for me. Yeah, so I, th- I guess a relief and, and then a, yeah, or am I over-dramatising this situation and maybe I didn't need to do that or maybe I shouldn't have done that, but yeah. But I'm at peace with that. I'm, yeah, is what it is, eh? Now, many years before this deployment, you had served at a US military hospital during Operation Desert Storm in the Middle East. Are you able to go into a little bit of detail about that and explain how did what you experienced in Afghanistan compared to that? It was such a different experience. And it might have been my place in life as well and and where I was at. You know, when we deployed to Desert Storm, I was really young. I think I was 21. And it was very early on in my career. And not to minimise that experience, it, it might be just my understanding of the lack of understanding at that time of the much wider situation of what that conflict was about. But it was almost an adventure because we were heading off. Uh, it was a, a while since the NZDF had deployed anywhere. It was this massive situation that was kicking off. 
with a, a very large build-up. And we went, to be fair, we went and worked in a large hospital. I think it was about a 500-bed hospital with the US Navy. They were reservists, and in fact, uh, with a team of, of about 30 Kiwis. But going to work in a far more controlled environment on a much larger scale. You know, that was my first experience of deployment, and it sat so differently to the experience of Afghanistan, where we were a much smaller team and uh yeah, immediately less controlled environment or, or less safe, secure environment. In the Middle East, we were in Bahrain, nowhere near Kuwait, you know, well away from where the conflict was actually occurring. I guess going back to Afghanistan, when you did come home, were you able to leave the trauma behind or did what happened there have quite a lasting impact on you? It did have a lasting impact and I think still does to today. Some Something... Um, Unusual, and I'm not sure if other members of the team felt this, but as we left Afghanistan, um, something that was on my mind or, or a feeling that I had was because the last time we'd seen our casualties and, and our deceased soldiers was over in Afghanistan, as we left Afghanistan to come back through Australia and come home, I had a deep sense almost as if we were leaving those people over there because they weren't coming home with us. Um, so, yeah, that was a bit weird. As I adjusted back to life, I came back and I... I got posted to Wairu and was running the uh, medical treatment facility at Wairu. And I went through a period of, I never had PTSD, but in a, I think late in the first year of that posting, I went through a period of, of struggle. I actually sort of was diagnosed after some time with, or a short time actually, with a, an adjustment disorder. Um, and just that whole adjustment process from going from really quite a high intensity period in my life down to a, hey, now, here's a hospital, well, here's a, a small treatment facility, you need to run this. Yeah, and some of the things that sort of frustrated me in that role were perhaps exaggerated by my lesser ability to deal with and cope with mundane problems or what I perceived to be mundane problems. And that was actually picked up by one of my friends and colleagues who was a doctor, and she sort of said to me one day, hey, Dave, what's going on, man? You're, you're lashing out at command, you're lashing out at people, you're something's wrong. What do we do here? Because this is not okay. You're you know, potentially damaging your career and and also not in a happy space. So the long and the short of that was um, I actually referred out to a clinical psychologist or was referred out to a clinical psychologist and had a, a series of sessions and that was the best thing that I ever did. Uh, he was fantastic and helped me work through where I was at and how to, I guess, put tools in place to head off on a, on a better track. And since that time, how do you feel you've coped since then? I've done pretty well, I think. That was a, a tough period for a, a couple of years where I sort of, I did need to reset. I threw myself into um, postgrad study around that time, shortly after the army sponsored me onto my uh, master's in nursing, which I completed. So that gave me something to really get my teeth into. But I think that I still have low adjustment and I'll always have low adjustment. In truth, I probably had low adjustment before Afghanistan. And that plays out in some interesting ways for me. I'm somebody that I don't cope terribly well when I'm presented with loads of information all at once. I'm a slow thinker. It takes me time to digest information. Uh, I'm not that person that can come up with quick, ready answers for for things. Interesting on the, on the weapons range, I have a flinch. When small firearms goes off, it does startle me. And so if I'm on the on the range doing a, a weapons qualification, I kind of need to be the first person to get shots down the range. Otherwise, I'm likely to, oh, I kind of hear what's going on around me and and get startled uh, and wind up putting uh, rounds or bullets all over the place, as in on the target, of course, but yeah. How much has 
your experience in Afghanistan informed that postgraduate nursing studies that you mentioned? Have you drawn on your experiences over there in the field, in the thick of it, and have you shared those experiences with other people through that learning environment? I have. I made a, a commitment coming out of this experience to try and be as best as I could an open book and to talk about this without being that person that doesn't shut up about it and just talks about it all the time. So when I came back and when I was in Wairu, I managed to, I put together a an exemplar for a nursing journal that was about my experience and what it was like to be a nurse there. And, uh, and the army agreed to allow me to have that published. Uh, so that went out in that journal. And that was almost like self-therapy, I think. You know, it's just, it's telling a story um, and getting it out there. And it's only my truth. There might be others in the team that disagree with that truth or other people in the organisation, but that's just, you know, it was just about my truth. Um, and then I found it a really rewarding experience having the opportunity uh, to speak to Eugene Bingham and, and have that that stuff article written. That was really good for me. Yeah, Quite cathartic. Yeah, absolutely. And and it all of these things help you, I guess, make sense and make peace with, with what's occurred. Something else, though, that has changed a little bit along the way is in being an open book, I found that I was often presenting to particularly health professionals my story about what happened and what we did for casualties and, and how aspects of that worked. And that got tougher over time. I um, used to go down to the Defence Health School and present to the courses sort of before they graduated about just this is a scenario, this is what we did, what do you think and, and how did that feel and what was it like at the Sharpie and actually having to do what it is that we are all training to do. Uh, but it did get tougher. Not saying that you sort of relive it every time I'm telling that story, but yeah, it got tougher and in the end I sort of stopped doing that and said to the school, hey, the, the chief instructor that's called, this is the presentation, I'm more than happy for others to deliver this, but I probably need to stop doing this. There was one particular incident where it sort of, not came to the head for me, but I sort of realised, hey, I'm not comfortable with this. And I had presented to a group of medics and I'd got a couple of the clinical details wrong. I was thinking about one casualty and gave, you know, some of my decision-making that was actually about another casualty. And it was actually left feeling quite foolish because one of the audience actually said to me, wow, that's a massive call that you made on that casualty because of a technical aspect, but the technical aspect, technical aspect rather, was wrong. So it left me feeling quite professionally embarrassed. Um, yeah, and then there is the, hey, it's, you know, enough. I've, you know, I've, I've told that story enough. Just thinking about that almost triggering element of recounting your experience and that learning environment and you mentioned being on the firing range and how that can sometimes affect you. How often do you think about what happened in Afghanistan to this day? Yeah, I think my triggers are really around the timing. So Anzac Day is really meaningful for me now and that's certainly a, has turned into a day of reflection for me and I sort of try and surround myself with family and obviously military colleagues as well. Uh, but that period of time around early to mid-August each year is a, yeah, that's a, certainly a time of thinking and a, and a challenging month for me. What do you want the New Zealand public to know about the work of the New Zealand Defence Force in Afghanistan? I would want the public to know that they've got a defence force that do deploy and do deploy into a range of different environments and situations and put themselves out there voluntarily to go into these areas to represent New Zealand and represent our government and our military force and that we need to own everything that goes with that. Yeah, not all of our veterans 
cope well with their experiences. Not all veterans are, are broken and needing, you know, really intensive resourcing to help them. That certainly isn't true, I don't think, in my opinion. Uh, but some do and some are. And we need to own that and own those people's journey because it is, you know, that these service people and veterans put themselves out there for our country. David, thank you very much for your time today. We do really appreciate you sharing your story with us. We'll end with one final reflection. If you could go back in time and tell your younger self one piece of advice or some words of wisdom before deploying to Afghanistan, what would that be? My advice to myself would be learn well and take all of your training seriously because even though it's not highly likely that you'll ever be trade tested or profession tested to that level, it can happen. And second piece of advice, be careful what you wish for. We often think as young service people, wow, that, you know, I would like to have the opportunity to perform in those sort of circumstances and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. This podcast is a production of the New Zealand Defence Force Defence Public Affairs Team. We're your hosts, Alex Mason and Mitchell Alexander. We'd like to thank our guests for sharing their stories with us. If you need to talk to someone, you'll find details for support services in the show notes. We welcome your feedback on this podcast. Contact us via email, podcast at nzdf.mil.nz. Haere rā.